Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodum with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? In a year that improbably saw Vin Scully make his social media debut, the impossible happened with Major League Baseball completing its season and Scully's Los Angeles Dodgers winning their first title in 32 years. Scully turned 93 years old on Sunday, and September 9th marked the 55th anniversary of Sandy Koufax throwing a perfect game with Scully in the broadcast booth. Writing for Yahoo at the time, Jeff Passan, now with ESPN, headlined a 51st anniversary piece, The Greatest Call Ever, the story of Sandy Koufax's perfect game. Scully, who had called three previous no-hitters by Koufax, wanted to memorialize this moment by adding details like the time, attendance, and Sandy's performance down the stretch, providing Koufax and baseball fans everywhere with a keepsake from that night. Here's how Scully called the end. On the scoreboard in right field, it is 9.46 p.m. in the City of Angels, Los Angeles, California, and a crowd of 29,139 just sitting in to see the only pitcher in baseball history to hurl four no-hit, no-run games. He has done it four straight years, and now he capped it. On his fourth no-hitter, he made it a perfect game. And Sandy Koufax, whose name will always remind you of strikeouts, did it with a flourish. He struck out the last six consecutive batters. So when he wrote his name in capital letters in the record books, that K stands out even more than the O-U-F-A-X. Koufax held the record for most no-hitters thrown until Nolan Ryan earned his fifth no-no in 1981. Recently, I found my 1992 conversation with Jeff Torborg, the man who caught Koufax's perfect game in 1965, and Ryan's first no-hitter eight years later. Last week on Thanksgiving Day, November 26th, Torborg turned 79 years old. At the time of the interview in December 1992, Torborg was preparing for his second season as the manager of the New York Mets, a season he would not complete with the ball club. We talked about growing up in Westfield, New Jersey, his decision to go to Rutgers University, joining the Los Angeles Dodgers, and returning to school at Montclair State to complete a degree that would impact his next career as a manager. We ended the conversation with recollections of the great pitchers he'd caught, played against, and managed. Torborg played for the Dodgers from 1964 to 1970 and the California Angels from 1971 to 1973. In addition to the Mets, he managed the Cleveland Indians, Chicago White Sox, Montreal Expos, and the Florida Marlins. Torborg led the Marlins at the start of the 2003 season before Jack McKeon took over the team, leading them to a World Series title later that year. Torborg and McKeon both have a connection to Ryan's first no-hitter. Torborg caught Ryan that night in 1973, and McKeon, the manager of the Kansas City Royals at the time, protested the way Ryan tapped the rubber with his right foot. 
In between and then after his managerial stints, Torborg was a broadcaster for Fox and CBS Radio. Thanks for your patience with this 28-year-old audio, and I hope you enjoy this Jeff Torborg interview. Rutgers honored Jeff Torborg last night by naming a scholarship in his honor. And while he's the manager of the New York Mets, Torborg graduated from the Rutgers School of Education in 1963 and starred as an All-American catcher on the banks. He joins us this evening from his home. Welcome to Nightline, Coach Torborg. I appreciate it, Stu. So um, first I wanted to ask you a little bit about the honor of uh, having a scholarship uh, named for you at the university you graduated from and also a little bit about some of the uh, guests that um, attended, uh, Nolan Ryan and Bill Singer, two men uh, that you caught no hitters of in the major leagues. And and if you could compare that at all to um, your experience at the Hall of Fame game in Cooperstown this summer where you managed the Mets against your old team, the Chicago White Sox. Well, yeah, there are a lot of emotions swirling around of all the situations that you just mentioned. Of course, the Cooperstown game was the first chance I got to see my uh, club that I had managed for three years, a team that we really had made great strides with. 89, we scuffled. 90, we won 25 games more than we had the year before. We won 94 games. And 91, we won 87. And we, if we hadn't hit a stretch where we lost 15 out of 17, we really would have given Minnesota a run for their money, I think. Uh, and then to see them up at the Cooperstown game was um, it was very heartwarming because uh, Fisk gave me such a bear hug he almost broke my ribs and uh, to get to see somebody especially the kids we brought along and the guys that we went to battle with like Big Penn and Radinsky and uh, and the coaching staff you know it was really great to see and it you know it tugs at the heartstrings you know it, because um, it was a very difficult decision for me to to come or I should say to leave the White Sox. It wasn't difficult to come back home and, and to accept the challenge of the Mets. Little did I know what I was getting into. You know, I didn't realize that um, we'd have the kind of year that we just uh, recently had. But um, the evening was one when it was first um, mentioned to me. I was a little concerned about uh, that type of evening. I, I felt like, you know, at this time of year, with everyone so busy nearing the holidays and it would be taking people, especially the the uh, people involved in baseball, in their off-season away from home. And I just, you know, I, I hate to ask people favors, and, and I knew that it was a wonderful cause. I mean, I was tremendously honored by the the thought that the university wanted to do this and, and that um, Bob Fay, who was a uh, actually student manager of the baseball team at the time, was uh, instrumental in, in starting to push this thing. And, of course, Les Unger used to be the SID and was very uh, successful up in the Meadowlands, um, uh, kind of joined in with him, and they put a committee together. Well, to make a long story short, at, at first I thought, boy, I'm not sure I want to do this. But then when I heard that Nolan Ryan was willing to fly across country with his wife and Don Drysdale, Joe Moeller, Bill Singer, uh, Bill White was very... Um, willing to help in, in any way he could and of course he was the MC. and you're talking about uh, just very good friends and super people and super professionals you know when you talk about uh, Nolan's on the way to the Hall of Fame of course and Drysdale's already there and the other two guys uh, Moeller, I mean yeah Joe Moeller and Bill Singer were, were very close friends and we worked very hard together as you know pitcher catcher so um that was wonderful that they were coming and then all of a sudden I realized how many people you know, people I had not seen say since high school who were coming and um, the Mets and the Yankees and, and uh, Cleveland a lot of people um, were very interested in, in helping this type of thing along And of course I didn't have a scholarship going to Rutgers um, I can still remember Matt Bolger my coach uh, after my sophomore year saying that um, 
that he was going to go set, find a scholarship for me because my mother and father didn't have very much money and uh, my mom worked for 19 years in a drugstore and my dad was a life insurance agent. We really struggled, you know, to get the through um, the four years. But uh, you know, those are things you don't forget. So if this kind of thing um, in my name can help uh, a, a scholar-athlete play baseball at Rutgers, I am just thrilled because I knew how much it meant to me. That's great. Now, I wanted to go back a little bit into um, some of the history that you brought up there. Is as a little leaguer, uh, you surprised your coach, who was your father, when you wanted to catch. Uh, what do you think drew you behind the plate, and what special skills made you so successful as a catcher? Well, it was interesting. Uh, a bunch of kids and I were out playing at the Tamaquas Park, which is the park in, in Westfield where you play Legion and used to play high school. And one of the uh, group of the, of the kids who were there had catcher's equipment, and I just put it on to fool around with it, and I loved it. And, of course, I kid now with other people. I say, well, you've got to realize I'm the only guy facing the right way. Of course, other people from their perspective can say he's the only one facing the wrong way. But um, I, I just enjoyed being um, in the start of everything. You know, you initiate the, the whole start of play by giving the sign of the pitcher, and the pitcher then uh, delivers the ball to you, and you're involved in just about every pitch. And I just um, it it just attracted my uh, my interest because uh, I was um, a very aggressive player when I was younger and I didn't have a lot of finesse. I had played shortstop. I had a real good arm and I was a, a pitcher in a little league like most kids are when they can throw. But the opportunity to go behind the plate where you could use your head a little bit and um, and you could mix it up, you know, on plays uh, at the plate. I like that and I, it just was the the whole atmosphere of what the catcher brings to the game that really enticed me to it. Now, um, your All-State high school play uh, caught the Cleveland Indians' attention. Uh, did any other major league teams or colleges recruit you, and uh, why did you decide to play for Rutgers uh, ultimately? Well, I had spoken to other to other schools, you know, but, but it was more, I knew where I wanted to go. I was familiar with Rutgers, where Westfield, where I was raised, is not a long way away. George Case was the coach, and George had been a major league star, and uh, was a wonderful guy. And I look forward to going to play for him. But I also wanted the good education, and that's what Rutgers afforded. And um, when it came down to, I went out to Reading, Pennsylvania, to work out, and supposedly a special workout with the Cleveland Indians. My first taste of professional baseball, going out there and working out, and when it what was supposed to have been a special tryout. You know, I thought, well, what's going to be? Maybe 20 kids. There were over 100 kids out there, and it made me realize, you know, you can be conned along by this game a little. And uh, they made an offer, and it was more money than I was uh, really familiar with, and, and it certainly could have helped the family at the time, but my mother and father were so interested in my getting the education, as was I, that uh, I re it wasn't a very big decision not to, to sign a pro contract. I, I, wasn't, I hadn't grown very much at that point. I, I think I probably weighed, getting out of Westfield High School, 170 pounds, and um, I just thought that uh, four more years of, of maturity uh, from all standpoints plus a degree would, would make it much easier for me to go into professional baseball. And, and that's basically the way it worked out. Of course, in those days, there was no draft. Um, I went out before the draft, and, and uh, I had an opportunity in my junior year in college to work out with the Mets on two occasions in the Polo Grounds and also Cincinnati, out in Cincinnati. And it was quite an experience for me, and I, um, that was my junior year, and I realized that, hey, I wanted my degree. I just knew what that would do for me, and I also found that I really enjoyed teaching. I had done my student teaching, and I really enjoyed that. So if the baseball didn't work out, I would have been very happy to be a teacher and a coach. So that basically gives you a little general idea of what, um, how 
I entered Rutgers. I, I, I knew from the time I was uh, oh, maybe 12 or, or 14 that I wanted to go to Rutgers. I had followed their athletics, and I, I knew that's where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Now, your sophomore year on the Banks brought a new manager, Matt Boulder, as you alluded to before. What effect did he have on your career? <laughs> you know, that's funny. He was a football coach. I don't know if you're aware of that. He was on John Bateman's staff. And supposedly he was hired as an interim coach because George Case left to become the third base coach of the expansion Washington Senators under his his uh, former teammate and close friend Mickey Vernon. So in comes a football coach, and he, one of the other catchers on our team, on the Rutgers team, was the quarterback, Bill Speranza, who has coached at Rutgers for many years. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, ball coach, the quarterback's the other uh, in trouble here. But it turned out that uh, I had a great experience with Matt um, he was not only a coach to me, he was a friend. He was really family. He and my mother and dad were became friendly, and we have uh, stayed in close contact with him ever since. And he went the extra mile with me. He'd be up at the field on the heights up there, and, of course, it, the field has changed now. The, the field that I played on is where the practice football field is that faces out toward the president's home. And uh, he'd be out there early. He'd throw batting practice to me um, 15, 20, half-hour um, we're going over situations, and I just know that later on he couldn't throw batting practice anymore, and I knew it was because he had thrown so much to me. But he meant so much to me because he was a big, tough guy. He was a former uh, Marine Corps captain who fought in the Second World War, was a fighter pilot, was shot down a couple times, and he just was, um, he had an aggressiveness that that fired me up, and, I, and I just, he just gave me an opportunity to play. So he, he meant a great deal to my career. And you went on to... Uh have a 537 batting average in your senior year, which is still a, a, a Rutgers record. And um, then the next uh, couple Rutgers people that I wanted to bring up were, uh, how big a role did Rutgers graduate uh, Ozzie Nelson have in encouraging you to play for the Dodgers in L.A.? And also, uh, how big a decision was it for you to make uh, coming out of college? You uh, married your high school sweetheart, uh, Susie Barber, and um, then after, a, after a, a week or two at the shore, went out to Albuquerque to play for uh, the Dukes and the uh, Dodgers minor league system. So, how big were those two people in your, uh, you know, in, in uh, beginning your baseball career? Well, actually, you know, Susie and I had gone to high school together. We went to Westfield High School together, and even junior high school in the town. And um, she knew how much I wanted to play ball, and, and she has been the most supportive person that anyone could ever possibly be in a career. And uh, at the time, I knew that I wanted to try to play and. It was uh, nearing the end of my senior year, and, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, there was no draft, so that um, any club in the major leagues could bid on you, and a lot of clubs were starting to do so. Well, through a connection, uh, Ricky Nelson um, had been married to Tom Harmon's daughter, and of course, you even see the the, the kids now. I guess the two the twins are are in the um, musical field, and and one of the daughters is uh, is on TV, and. Uh, but Ricky, that connection through Ricky and through um, Tommy Harmon, Tommy was uh, the former All-American and Heisman Trophy winner, was by that time a uh, highly respected uh, telecaster out in Los Angeles. So through the Dodgers, they made contact, knowing that Ozzie Nelson had uh, gone to Rutgers, and had, you know, of course they had Ozzie and Harry Chill on television. He had been a big band leader. And he called to the Heights to talk to Matt and me, and it was uh, it was very exciting. Here I was, a 21-year-old kid, and somebody I've been watching on television for many, many years, and kind of related to the family even, and for him to try to interest me in the uh, the Dodgers was um, quite a touch, and the Dodgers always had such great class, so that we actually, ironically, when I narrowed down my choices, I was 
the Mets were new. They were only in their second year at that point, and I was thinking that that would be the quickest way to the major league. So I really had my eye on the Mets, and of course the Dodgers as well, because I had grown up a Giant fan, hating the Yankees and the Dodgers, and the irony of that, of course, is that I coached for the Yankees for 10 years and played with the Dodgers. But uh, when we got down to it, it basically came down to where I felt that I could play had an opportunity to play and would be proud of the organization, and that's why I signed with the Dodgers. So Ozzie, you know, he was one of those touches that the Dodgers used, but mostly it was Susie and um, and I deciding where we wanted to go. And then, of course, when I went to Albuquerque, that was quite a jump. I went from the college playing field right to double-A ball, and it was a hot double-A league. It was a Texas league, and I was overmatched when I got there. And I had go- the rules in those days were that uh, I could go and sign before graduation, but I had to wait till my last exam was over which I did, and they had a catcher get hurt at double-A, so I went out there to play before we even graduated. So we were graduating on the 5th of June and getting married on the 6th, and I got back on the 4th. And it was after only a a two-day short honeymoon, and when I got out there, they even said I was late, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is is a cold, cruel world out here. But uh, that's how the the professional experience started, and, of course, um, at 537 batting average must have been an aberration because I never even came close to that afterwards. I ended up hitting 214 and uh, take a lot of kidding about it. But um, that is how my professional experience really uh, was funneled toward the Dodgers. Now, uh, when you got out there, I guess you began an apprenticeship under Johnny Roseboro. You also played with uh, Johnny Padres, who was a link back to the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 55 World Championship. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, in your career, you caught three no-hitters, including gems by Sandy Koufax and Nolan Ryan. You you caught Don Drysdale and a young Don Sutton with the Dodgers, and you also played against Bob Gibson, and today you managed Dwight Gooden. Um, now, each of these pitchers has their, their own special skills and their own special place, I guess, with you, but who do you think is the best pitcher you've ever played with or against, and, and why? You know, I really can't, and it sounds like I'm giving you a political answer, but I really can't um, pick one. It's it's tough to, to pick people from different eras. Um, each guy that you had mentioned, you said, had special skills. They had special desires and fire. Drysdale and Sutton and, and most competitive people I've ever been around, you know, they just are unbelievably, um, Andy Messersmith was another one, uh, tremendous drive. Now, you know, you don't pitch at 45 going on a pitch at 46, but no one has without really um, having a great um, work ethic and, and also being lucky. But Drysdale, to give you a little idea, Drysdale was an unbelievable competitor. Six foot six, two hundred and thirty pounds. He was mean as a son of a gun on the field. But he was one of the, the greatest team guys I've ever been around. For an example, he um, he was passed over. He had more rest at, for the seventh game of the '65 World Series, and Walter Alston picked Sandy Koufax to pitch the game with two days rest instead of Drysdale with three. Well, today's ball player, you know, you'd see it plastered all over the papers, what a big deal this would have been, you know, and the lack of loyalty and all that. Drysdale went to the bullpen and was warming up in the ninth inning when we were uh, winning two to nothing, and, and there was one out in the ninth inning. I mean, that's, he never said a word. He was a team guy, and he's in the Hall of Fame. You know, never missed a start in all those years he was pitching. Also an outstanding hitter. So uh, he, he, was a, he brought something special to the table. Sandy Koufax, of course, I caught his perfect game, and, um, he was great. He was just great. Every time he took the field, just had a feeling he pitched a no-hitter. And, and that's the same way I felt about Nolan Ryan. Sutton, Don was a young guy. Um, Don accomplished what he did, 323 wins, I guess he's got, without great stuff. He had a super curveball, but he didn't have a great fastball. He did it with a lot of guile, a lot of guts, um, 
pure moxie, you know. Nolan is a different... Nolan is like Sandy. He's a right-handed Sandy in the sense that he is strong and could rock at the ball of the plate, and he's got an outstanding curveball. Sandy Koufax had the best curveball I've ever seen. It, it, it used to drop a foot to a foot and a half, and I think back in the 50s, some, some scientists said that curveball is an optical illusion. Well, he never tried to catch Koufaxes or try to hit it. But um, just to talk about those guys, and you mentioned Gibson. Of course, I played against him. I didn't play with him. Tough competitor, real good stuff. And Doc Gooden, of course, Doc is, what I've seen of Doc was a rehab pitcher this year, and he made an unbelievable comeback. So what Doc did as such a young pitcher, there's a lot of people say when you put a lot of pitches on a young pitcher, it's going to pay down, you're going to have to pay the, the, the price down the road, and I think Doc is doing that now. But all the good ones have a special fire in their stomach. And the guys that we just talked about um, have had, and and were were great for me. The experiences I had with them, uh, they're all very close friends, and I have great respect for them as people as well. Now, I wanted to get back a little bit to your academic career. Uh, your thesis, um, um, I believe it was for your master's degree in athletic administration at Montclair State, was on the effects of platooning in baseball. Um, did uh, how how were you able to apply the practical experience of playing under a Matt Bolger and a Walter Alston in the Dodgers organization to apply that to a to a paper and an academic project? Well, that thesis was uh, I did that at Montclair State, and it was really one of interest for me because I just enjoyed what I was writing about. I calculated two hundred fifty one thousand at bats into the thing. Um, I just wanted to see uh, what it showed at the, and I used uh, statistics from the. Uh, National League from three years back and the American League five years back just to see if I could see there was anything um, definitive that would come out of it. And actually, jokingly, I was if platooning didn't have merit, I was going to go back to Walter Ross and say, see, that didn't work because he, uh, he had Roseboro and myself platoon. But uh, it did prove to, to work. And, and um, But, of course, every study like that and any statistical analysis always has uh, some weaknesses, you know, and the variables involved. But I, you know, I, I've used a platoon basis uh, based on statistical um, evaluation at the, as as a manager, and it, it works at times, and certainly doesn't work other times because you're talking about the the human factor. With Matt, Matt didn't platoon. Matt just played us. He, you know, we played hard nosed baseball. He was a good coach, and we had good teams. He, he never overmanaged. He let us play, and he, we knew he was behind us. Waller was a little different. Waller often used, um, uh, and of course, you, you're talking about a, a college coach who only coaching uh, at the most 25 games in those days as opposed to a major league managers managing 162 and he's got to really make use of his whole roster but Waller often used the um, platooning factor um, whenever he could as did Casey Stengel with a great Yankee team so um, that you, know, you can use statistical analyses but uh, you never can measure how big a guy's heart is and that's got to be taken into consideration too but the study was of, of interest to me that it gave me a little foundation uh, for later on when I was thinking about managing. Now, another Rutgers star, um, Eric Young, has kind of followed the same path that you did through the Dodgers organization. And now um, he'll visit you at Shea Stadium at the start of next season with the Colorado Rockies. Um, I, I was interested in, in asking, have you ever played or managed with or against a Rutgers player before? Uh, i got to stop and think. Uh, yeah, uh, McDonald, the left-handed pitcher that's up with Toronto, uh, pitched and pitched very well against us um, when I was with the White Sox. Uh, Eric's a kid that I really kind of personally watched because uh, I met him years ago, and um, I'm really impressed with him as a, as a 
a young man. You know, he's an outstanding football player as well, and, and he's really progressed through the Dodger organization. But now with Don Baylor and the Colorado Rockies taking him, that can do nothing but help him. He's going to get a chance to play. and uh, He's a strong little son of a gun, and he can run. He's going to be a good player. Now, they converted him from the outfield to second base, and he was a little rough. A good athlete like that with uh, the kind of makeup he has is going to be successful. And in that light air out there, he's allowed to hit some home runs. And um, now after, a, I guess, a frustrating season with the Mets, what, what do you look forward to next year um, with, with next year's team? And, and well, what do we look for? Yeah, that's a good question, and that, you know, I, we'll talk for hours on that. We had a terrible year this year. It just was one of those years that uh, I guess was not meant to be. We had so many injuries. We, had, uh, we used the, the uh, disabled list 19 times. The most a Mets team has ever used in the past was 11. We had 14 surgeries by the end of the season, and we had seven fractures. We lost a player from every position on the field, with the exception of Eddie Murray. And in the wintertime, he's had both ankles operated on. So, I mean, this was a disastrous year. I went in with such high hopes, <coughs> excuse me, and, of course, the media had made such a, a big deal after we had signed Bobby Bonilla, and we got uh, Saberhagen in trade. We got Willie Randolph. We felt we were going to blow the division away at least uh, that's what was written. I had a little bit of a feeling in another direction. I was a little concerned about the defense. I'm very defensive-oriented, and I was concerned about team speed. And as it, as it really came to the fore, we saw that we were not a good defensive team. We couldn't defend an artificial turf field very well, and we didn't run real well. We had great stats uh, running and uh, percentage-wise, but we just, uh, I, well, comes down, you can't steal first base. We had 235 as a team, which was... A, by far the worst in all of baseball. I mean, the next closest team to us hit nine points higher. But with all the adversity that we had, uh, the first week in August, we were out going in to play the Pirates. We ended up losing a 12-inning game to them, which could have really turned the series around because we were just short. By then, we had lost Bobby Benio with a broken rib and Howard Johnson going down with a broken hand. And, and the following three days later, we lost Magan with a broken hand. Willie Randolph went down right after that. Just an unbelievable set of circumstances. But I wasn't real pleased even when we were relatively ha uh, healthy. We were not playing the kind of brand of baseball that I like. And I I believe in team, and I really preached that, and it worked with the White Sox. And it took me a while there. We had a terrible 89. So I'm hoping that we can turn this next year around the way we did with the White Sox. We won 94 games in, in 1990. And I think with the blend of veterans that we have now with the, the uh, three good young everyday players in Hunley and Jeff Kennett second and Ryan Thompson in center, Blending that together with the veterans, I think we got a chance to turn it around. I think now the focus will be off us a little bit relative to all the publicity about, oh, look at the big names, look at the big payroll. And I think um, slowly but surely we'll start playing the kind of game that I want them to play as a team and um, putting egos aside, you know. And, and I, all I ask these guys to do is, is give me a, uh, the best level of intensity they can give me per game. I don't worry about numbers. I don't worry about stats. I don't worry about individual stuff. All I care about is if we can go out and play hard every night, you will then win your share, the ones that you know, you're know you actually capable of winning. And the fans uh, uh, buy into that, you know, and then, and then they feed off of that. And I think that's what we've got to do here. And I, it was a horrible year last year. I mean, it was nothing went right. I was very, very disgruntled about the way things had gone. And, of course, New York is a unique market. Um, so much coverage, so much media coverage. But I, I think the guys that we have here now are just ready to go, and, and they have a lot to uh, to prove to people. So I, I think you're going to see uh, a surprising team this year. Mm. 
And that's something I was hoping to allude to, too, was about uh, how you played in New York. I mean, you managed in New York, you played in Los Angeles, and you managed in Chicago, the three biggest markets. Are, I guess they're a little bit different, but uh, and you grew up in New York. Um, coming home, I guess that has a special um, place for you. You said that you were a, a, um, a Giants fan growing up, but uh, how, does, how did that feel to be uh, brought back by the Mets last uh, winter? Well, that was a unique happening. You don't find too many managers on long-term contracts have... Um permission granted that they go to another place or even ask for and I was uh, very much uh, flattered by the Mets interest um, I'm sure they had their doubts as the season was going on this year whether they should have bothered but um, it was a challenge to me to come back I knew the Mets had had a terrible year I knew that the situation um, uh, was in disarray over there and we really didn't get it quite turned around except if anybody followed closely at the end of the year we were basically putting a triple A team on the field and we busted our tails through September when everybody wrote us off and the media put us down. Um, we lost five games in the eighth inning, two in, uh, five in the ninth, two in the eighth, one in the fourteenth in the last three and a half weeks. Well, unless you're playing your tail off, you don't even get that close. So they made me proud of that, and they did exactly what we wanted to do, and we started to make a team out of it, but we got a ways to go. But coming back here home was really um, a dream come true for me because it enabled me to live in our home and. Uh, in Mountainside. My mom still lives in Westfield. She's 81 years of, old, uh, of age and lives by herself. And it gave me the opportunity to be back in an area that I'm comfortable with. However, when I got back in, I didn't realize how things had changed since 1988 when I left the Yankees. Um, the media coverage was much more in-depth than it ever had been before because WFAN is in the picture. Uh, several of the newspapers have changed their approach as to how they're reporting games, and a, and a couple of the newspapers were in financial difficulty. So you had a tremendous competition among the, the print and uh, electronic media. And, and as a manager in a team, you get caught in a crossfire. But, um, and when you're not winning, it certainly is magnified. But um, I, we're all ready for it. I lost 27 pounds this winter. I had my knee scope last spring, and I think these guys followed me too closely <laughs> with all the injuries we had. But uh, I got the weight off. I'm, boy, I'm raring to go now. And I just got a, I got a, a feeling in my stomach that we're going to have some year. And uh, just before we go, this is, uh, you know, you, you, we always consider you uh, a Rutgers man, even though you are the Mets coach now. Do you have anything, this was a special place for you um, where you uh, went to school with your wife, uh, a graduate of Douglas College. Um, do you have anything uh, to say to the Rutgers community before we go this evening? Well, it goes without saying, you know, I just, uh, the foundation that I got at Rutgers academically and athletically have uh, been just uh Unmeasurable, if that's a term, um, for what we have been able to do in our career. I, I don't think that I would have had the kind of um, a career that I've had in, in some ways, certainly not uh, puffing my chest out about any offensive records or statistics or anything by any means, but knowing how to live your life and uh, face the kind of pitfalls that you'll face when you're out there is what you learn at a place like Rutgers, because Rutgers was special uh, to me. They... There were people who cared there. The professors cared. Uh, from the day one, and the director of admissions uh, really seemed to care. So after the four years there, and later on, incidentally, I don't know if you've ever read it anywhere, but when I was released from the Cardinals, and at 32 years of age with three children, I was starting over again. The, one of the first calls I got was from Matt Bolger. He said, well, they might not want you to Rutgers in 1974 as an assistant coach, and really enjoyed it. 
And before I joined Frank Robinson in Cleveland, I became the athletic director at Wardlaw. And that was a connection with Rutgers as well. Dick Hale and Matt uh, set it up for me. So I was an athletic director there for part of a year. So um, the ties to Rutgers never, never end. And that's the thing you guys um, there in the campus now, you've got uh, your whole lives ahead of you, business careers or whatever professional endeavors you're, you're heading for. And um, don't ever forget the guys that, the people that were there for you when, when you needed them most, and that's what was so great about the Rutgers family. Thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes and find us wherever you get podcasts, including Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M is in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.